Matthew chapter 28, 27, starting in verse 45, it says this, And now the sixth hour, and until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. They said it in a mocking voice. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice again, and he yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, that great veil that symbolized the fact that God was separated from man. It was torn in two, symbolizing again that Jesus Christ had made the way complete from man to God. And the graves were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised after the earth quaked. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion, the Roman soldier, the one in charge of the execution, and those who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared God greatly. These Roman soldiers, the ones who could have easily missed the significance of it, not the religious establishment of the day, but the ones who could have easily missed the significance of it, they spoke with great clarity, saying, truly, this man was the Son of God. It says here, continuing in verse 57, Now when the evening come, there was a rich man who was from Arimathea. His name was Joseph, who he himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. He had broken from the establishment of the day, the uh, the religious swell of the day, and he said that I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth, laid it in his own new tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. He was simply wanting to respect Jesus, this one whom they followed. Then Mary Magdalene was there, the other Mary sitting opposite of the tomb, two women who are very significant in the narrative of Jesus Christ. And into verse 1 of chapter 28 of the book of Matthew, it says this, And now after the Sabbath, after the Sabbath, as the first of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing was as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him, and they became like dead men. But the angels answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. And now listen to this. He is not here, for he is risen. He is risen. Amen and amen. What a wonderful story. It is more than a story. It is more than a narrative. It is more than a legend. It is the truth of our God, God the Son. Jesus Christ. You see, it was really interesting of the day. 2,000 years ago, there in Jerusalem, Jesus Christ had become a, 
a burr in the saddle, if you will, of the religious establishment of the day who were waiting for their Messiah. Great irony that we'll see here in our focal passage of Acts chapter 13. The great irony was that they'd been waiting for their Messiah for years, for decades, for centuries, and they missed their Messiah when he was right before their face. Some could say, in fact, they missed their Messiah because they were waiting, waiting for a conquering king who would come and overthrow the oppressors of Rome. There was some truth in that. But even if they would have been looking with clarity and open hearts and minds at their own scriptures, those very things they studied in their synagogues, of which Paul will see here in just a few moments, went, they would realize that their, their servant, their Messiah, would be a suffering servant. But Jesus came to them, and they rejected him, and they put him to death, but death could not hold him. As we just sang, the veil was torn before him at the death of Christ, that very veil that symbolized, again, that separation between man and God, because our sin has separated us from a holy God. But he, that veil was torn in two, because God the Father was saying, this is my son, and because of him, if you place your faith and trust in him, you relationship, your relationship with me might be restored. You will be forgiven and cleansed. So now when we turn over to Acts chapter 13, we see a really interesting character who has come on the scene. Many of you know him well. His name is Paul, the Apostle Paul. Some could say he might be, outside of Jesus, the most important figure in all of Christendom. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And he himself was right in the midst and in the vein of that religious Uh, establishment of the day. He was a Pharisee, and he was an incredibly important Pharisee. He was one, he was was sort of a a rocket ship ascending into the the great heights of the leadership of the day. We really don't have anything that's sort of an equivalent to it in our society. In their society, it is sort of uh, the structure of their leadership. There was almost this melding of uh, what you might call uh, political leadership and religious leadership. It'd almost be the equivalent of some real hotshot senator in Washington who was also an incredible religious leader, but still that's, that doesn't even quite fit the bill because of the separation of those things to a certain degree in our society. But in their society, there was a great molding of those two things, and so a Pharisee was a great religious and political leader, an incredibly important man, and this guy was a rising star. Paul was a rising star, and he made his name... He made his name and part of his name and part of his reputation by persecuting this new way, capital W. That's what they were called at the beginning of the early church, those who were followers of Jesus Christ. This one who the religious establishment of the day thought to be a heresy, a blasphemer, because he said, I am your Messiah. I am God on earth. And they said, certainly you can't be. You've come from Nazareth. You're not a conquering king. You're not a mighty warrior. You're not who we were hoping for. And he pointed constantly, and his whole life pointed constantly to the scriptures, those prophecies that said, your Messiah would be a lowly leader, a suffering servant, the embodiment of the love of God on earth. But on that fateful day, we see a few chapters earlier from our focal passage in Acts chapter 9, Acts being the book of the record of the early church, the establishment of the early church after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, how, how the early church and Christendom just spread through like wildfire throughout the first century. So a few chapters before this, we see this real hot shot of a religious leader building his reputation by persecuting, putting to death, bringing to trial many of these Christians. He's riding on his way 
way up to Damascus, trying to fulfill his next job, leading many more people uh, to the stocks, whatever it may be. And he was knocked off his horse by none other than the risen Lord Jesus Christ who spoke from heaven, blinded him for a time, and powerfully spoke into his life, saved him in that very place. And we fast forward a few chapters later, and Paul has become the greatest evangelist for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, and we see this context here in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 13. It was kind of their practice. Paul and his traveling companions who were traveling throughout all of the known world at the time, spreading this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus wasn't just some ordinary man, but he was God come from heaven, stepped into flesh, ultimately who died on the cross for the sins of mankind. And only by placing your faith and trust in him will you be forgiven and cleansed and made right with God. The gospel message of which we'll return several times during this message itself. And he would go into these synagogues or the gathering places, probably the closest equivalent that we would have to a church or that they would have to what we would think of as a church. So it was Jews scattered throughout all of the known world at the time, and they would go and they would go to a particular city. They would ultimately speak the gospel message to all that would hear. That's Gentiles. Those are non-Jews, but they would first go to the synagogues. Those people who, in theory, their hearts should be more open to the message of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, because they'd been searching scriptures, and many of them were. Many of their hearts were open, but as we would see throughout their entirety of their journeys, that some of the hearts were closed. They're saying, no, this can't be the man. This can't be the one that we've been waiting for. And Paul said, let me tell you, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, I know this to be the man. In fact, Philippians chapter 3, you don't have to flip there with me, but I'll read it for you. Paul is giving his credentials to a church in one of these cities known as Philippi. He's giving his credentials to them. And he's less, he says, lest you think that I'm not part of who you were. I'm a Jew. I'm a Hebrew. And he's essentially saying almost uh, not in a sense of bragging, but then to tell them how much of a part of the establishment he was. He says, as though some might have confidence in the flesh, guess what? Some, he's saying, some of you might have confidence in who you are or your ability to save yourself. If you think you have it, I more so. He says in verse 4 of chapter 3 of the book of Philippians, if anyone else thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, again, that's in yourself, in your ability to save yourself, in, in your own credentials, if anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I more so. I was circumcised in the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, meaning, as he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. If anyone thinks they're a great Hebrew, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. I was an expert in the law. Concerning zeal, you think I don't have zeal and I didn't have zeal for, the, for our religion, our Hebrew people? Concerning zeal, I was persecuting this early church of which I come now and speak to you on behalf of. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. But these things, what these things were to me, he says, I have counted them lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. And these things I count, he says, all of those things I consider my great credentials of life, I count them all rubbish that I may gain Christ. You see, and this was often what he would do. This is one of the formal places that we see it in Philippians chapter 3. But he would go to these synagogues, and before he would speak to them, he says, let me know, lest you think that I'm some sort of wild-eyed crazy man. No, I was part of that establishment. I was part 
of, of those that were persecuting Jesus Christ. But I come and he says, I tell you with all truth and sincerity and greater zeal than I had before persecuting him, that he is your Messiah. And so we see here as we come to our focal passage of Acts chapter 13, that Paul stood here in Antioch of Pisidia in one of these many synagogues. He stood there and he was speaking truth with great zeal and great power. And he says to them, men and brethren, verse 26, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, those who were non-Jews, but yet they were those who were, who were warming to, to, to the word of God, to, to you who, who, who this word of salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem... And their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even that him as Jesus Christ, nor even the voices of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, they fulfilled in them. It's been fulfilled in them the condemning of Jesus Christ. And though they found no cause for death in Jesus, they asked Pilate, that was the Roman governor at the time, that Jesus should be put to death. The irony of this is that just like this instance of Paul going to the synagogue, for many weeks and months and years and really centuries in this sort of form of study and learning, they had been studying these prophecies of their Messiah. That is the great irony of it, yet they missed it. Yet they missed it. And let me tell you now, as we're kind of setting the table for the remainder of where God will go in the midst of this passage here, let me tell you this, write this down, commit it to memory, commit it to your heart. Do not miss God's call to salvation. Do not miss God's call to salvation. Jesus stands before you. You see, it is no surprise. It is no just sort of happenstance that you're here with us today. God has you here so that you might hear the greatest message, the truly only message that any human being needs to hear. It is the gospel message of how you might be forgiven and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. But as he went to this synagogue, and as he went to many other like it, he stood before them and he said, folks, essentially don't miss it. Many of you have been missing it for years and decades that this one who you've read about in the midst of your synagogue gatherings, this one is Jesus Christ. And let me tell you today, as we gather together in this Easter 2018, do not miss God's call to salvation. Jesus stands before you. And it says, and now when they had fulfilled all, Paul again on this discourse as he's speaking before the synagogue. Now when they, that is those, again, those religious leaders had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, all of those prophecies, they took him down from the cross, from that tree, and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. They thought this nuisance of Jesus Christ, this one that was leading this, this, uh, this fervor, this movement that threatened the very foundations of their, of their religiosity of the day, they thought this nuisance was dealt with. They hung him on a tree. They laid him in a tomb, but the tomb could not hold him. Death could not hold him. Galatians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, For him and by him and through him all things were created. 
That means that Jesus Christ, the one who walked, the, the walked this earth, the whole Bible tells us that he wasn't just a man. He was God the Son on earth. And guess what? Before his incarnation, before his coming to earth, he was the very agent of the Godhead in creation. He spoke the world into existence. And verse 17 of Galatians chapter 1 says, In him all things consist. By his very faithfulness, all that we see around us, the very complexity of the world was created through him, for him, by him, and all of it is held together. This nuisance of Jesus Christ that they laid in the tomb, that tomb couldn't hold him. He created the very hillside in which they had hollowed out that tomb. He created the very rock in which they'd hollowed out the tomb. He created the very rock that was rolled in place of the tomb. It was his creation, created for him, by him, through him, and all of it consists, that tomb Death could not hold him. But verse 31 says this, And he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, his cohort, his inner twelve, and and his witnesses, and and, and their witnesses of the people. This is very reminiscent of another thing that that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. It says this, as Paul again is writing to the church at Corinth, Speaking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says to the church at Corinth, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. All of it was prophesied. This wasn't happenstance. God made this happen. And he was seen by Cephas, another name for Peter, and then the twelve, the rest of the inner circle of Jesus Christ. And after that, it says... He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, although some have died. You you understand the significance of what Paul's doing there? Because remember, yes, he's speaking ultimately through time and eternity as as God intended it to us 2,000 years later. But remember, he's speaking to a primary audience. He's telling people, essentially, he says, not only did all of Jesus' inner 12 see it, but over 500 witnesses he appeared to. He's essentially challenging them to go hunt those people down. Some of them, he's saying, you know who some of them are. Go find them and ask them. Unless you think it's a great ruse, unless you think it's a great conspiracy, many of these people are being persecuted, being tortured, and they're dying for it. It leads us to one of the great defenses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's numerous objections and numerous wonderful defenses of some of those objections uh, to, the, to, to the thought and to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just a couple of them. One is, maybe you've heard of the swoon theory, like swoon, like this, like swoon theory, right? One of the great theories that's been out there for a long time, people that want to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ even though we see incredible historicity of it. I know that's a big word, but that simply means, and some of us, if you were with us uh, a couple of sermon series ago, we talked about historicity. Historicity is, is a tool in any sort of historical discipline, which means, does this particular account of this particular event hold up to historical scrutiny? And so there's many things that we just take for granted, like the histories of Rome, that we have very scant evidence based upon written evidence from the time. But when it comes to the Bible, the record of the biblical record of anything that we see, including the resurrection, the Bible blows away all historical records and the number of wonderful copies that we have preserved that are as close to the time as they're written. So not only do we have a wonderful historical record, but we think about something like the swoon theory. 
Some will say, well, the shock of the death upon the cross, and undoubtedly, could you imagine hanging upon the cross as your hands and your feet are nailed to that cross, a crown of big, long thorns that are, that are pierced into your head as you're hanging there gasping for air? Yes, yes, a traumatic experience, understandably. But some will say this tr- the experience was so traumatic that he went into shock, later to be revived, he swooned, later to be revived by the coolness of the tomb. There's one great problem with that. One great problem with it is this. Those men who were executing him, the Roman executioners, as as terrible as it sounds, they were absolute experts in execution. They were experts. They had killed dozens and dozens of people. They had executed, put to death dozens and dozens of people. And as Uh, crass as that may sound, I think it paints the picture for us of exactly who these men were. They knew when someone had died. They knew when someone had died. In fact, the biblical record tells us, to, to, uh, as was their practice, to check that the the person had died. They pierced his side with a spear, pierced his side with a spear. These men were experts in death. The likelihood that someone had not truly died, yet had been awoken in the tomb by the coolness is truly minuscule. What about the fact, as we alluded to just a few moments ago, as some will say, well, the disciples stole the body. They'd invested three years of their life in this man. Some of them had found newfound significance what they'd never known before. And so they just wanted to keep this going. Even though he had died, they just want to keep this going. So they stole his body from the tomb. That would sound like a wonderful theory if it wasn't for the fact that his inner 12, many of these 500, that they had died, they'd been persecuted, they'd been tortured, and they had been killed for what they believed. Do you really think if you were keeping up a ruse, you had stolen a body, you were keeping up this ruse uh, just to give yourself significance in life or whatever it may be, we can understand that part, sure, but would you keep it up in the face of persecution and torture and death? I don't think so. I don't think so, but it says that God raised him from the dead. He was seen by many witnesses, proof of the resurrection, proof that he was exactly who he claimed to be, the son of God on earth. In verses 30 through 37, again, 32 through 37, as as he's standing before this synagogue, he's standing before some of his Hebrew brethren, he's telling them, don't miss this. This was prophesied of long ago. We know in our context, God is a promise keeper unto you. He is the only one that you can count on 100%, and he has been a promise keeper, a prophecy keeper forever. And we declare to you these glad tidings, verse 32, that promise which was made to our fathers, Paul is saying. God has fulfilled this to us, their children, and that he raised up Jesus just as it was written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I have birthed you back from the grave. That he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption and decay as he has spoken. I will give you the sure mercies of David, those promises of David. And that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to corruption, to return to decay as he has spoken thus. I will give you those sure mercies of David. Therefore, he says in another song, you will not allow your Holy One to see that decay or that corruption. And he says this, David, our great forefather, again, David was kind of a combination for us of like George Washington, Lincoln, and like Michael Jordan, all rolled in one. 
He was an incredible leader in their history past and famous. He was one that they all looked to with glory and honor, even though he had fallen into sin. The Bible says he was still a man after God's own heart. They looked at him and revered him. And he said, for David, after he'd served his own generation by the will of God, he fell asleep, a euphemism for death. He was buried with his fathers and he saw corruption. His body decayed. But he, Jesus, whom God raised, saw absolutely no decay, no death. He says, no matter what you think, and folks, we can put this in our context very easily. No matter who we look to for direction, no matter who we place our faith and trust in, no matter who our heroes are of the day, they are still mere men and women. They will die. They will decay. He says, but Jesus was raised from the grave. Jesus was raised from the grave. And in verse 38, therefore, let it be known to you, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Through him, through him, through him. He says, in him, throughout all of his writings, Paul does, through him and in him. It is all about Jesus. It is not about us. It is only through him that we might be justified. We might be justified. It's a legal term. And again, in their context, he says, and he alludes to at the end of that, those couple of verses, he says, unlike the law of Moses, unlike what governed their lives as Hebrew people, he said, that law could not save you. You see, one of the great things that they had missed in whole, many of their believers, of course, had understood this. Many of the Hebrew people had understood this. But as a whole, the Hebrew people had missed the fact that the law of Moses, the law of God had been given to them, not so that if they adhere to it perfectly, if they be as good of a person as they possibly can, if they do as well as they can to not break the law of God, then somehow they'd save themselves. Somehow they'd save themselves if they could be as good as possible. Paul was saying that's not at all why the law was given. The law was given to show you how inadequate you are to save yourself, to show you how inadequate you are to meet the standard of a holy and just and righteous God. But he said, guess what? That's bad news if we end right there, right? But the gospel message of which we see the gospel proper here in verses 38 and 39 tell us that God has justified us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That word justified is a legal term. So can you imagine, sort of transport yourself to a courtroom, if you will, and you have a long list of grievances and violations against you. Maybe you've committed horrendous crimes, whatever it may be, and you stand there before the judge uh, condemned. You owe a debt in which there is no way you could pay it. But you can you imagine sitting off to the side in the courtroom of the, is the son of the very judge of whom you stand before condemned. And that son stands and he says, I will take their place. I will be their substitute. I will pay the debt that there is no way they have the ability to pay. See, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. As horrific and as horrible as the physical pain is, the greatest pain of the cross, the Bible tells us, is that the holy, perfect, pure Lamb, Son of God, who had known no sin, never been spotted by sin in all of his existence, hung there upon the cross and heaped upon him, upon his shoulders, was the sum total of the sin of mankind. And as he died upon the cross, the horror of that was so great that the face of the Father was turned. All 
that if we place our faith and trust in him, as Jesus himself says in Mark 1.15, if we repent, we turn from our old way of life, and we believe in him, we turn towards him as our Savior, the one who saves and forgives us of our sin, and our Lord, the one who takes control of our life, then we might be forgiven, cleansed, and justified just if I'd never sinned. You see, when the Son, Jesus Christ, stands in our place, it's as if our record of wrongs has been completely wiped away. God doesn't sit there each day kind of reminding you, "Eh, you remember when you've done this. I've saved you, but just reluctantly, remember when you've done this. Remember when you've done this. Remember when you've done this. Remember this one, this one, this one. No, it's just if I'd never sinned. It is wiped clean. You see, folks, the resurrection of God fortified the gospel. It fortified the gospel. It proved it to be absolutely the truth. Through him, through Jesus, and him only, we are made right with God. Only through him are we made right with God. But, you know, just as Jesus himself would often do, Jesus would start with an invitation, but he would end with a warning. He wanted people to know in truth what the stakes really were. Paul does the same here. As he's standing before this group of, in this synagogue, as he's standing before them, he says, Beware, therefore, beware, lest what has been spoken about the prophets comes upon you, lest it come true. Behold, you despisers, those ones who ignore the words of God, marvel and perish, for I work in your days a work which will by no means believe, that you'll by no means believe. The one of you were to, the one were to declare it to you. He says, don't close your ears. Don't be a group. He's saying, again, if we can put ourselves in the context of this passage, he's standing before a group maybe just like this, and he's saying, don't close your ears. I'm telling you the truth that this Jesus Christ, he is the Messiah. He is the answer for all of life. You know, as we often see here in Scripture, we call this a narrative passage. What that means is it's a story, it's a, it's a truth, it's a, it's, of course it's a truth, but it's a telling of a narrative rather than a discourse or rather than a lecture. It's telling a story of something that actually happened. And as often is the case, you see the, the sort of main thrust, or we might even just call it the main idea, the, very, the great truth, that kernel of truth that God's wanting to convey, sort of clarify throughout the course of this narrative. And I think that's exactly what it is here. What is it that God's trying to convey to us? What is the great thrust of this? And it's this very thing. Write this down. Listen to it. Take it to heart as we end. Religion and spirituality do not make you right with God. Religion and spirituality do not make you right with God. You know, in their context there, maybe in our context of modernity, you would see that they believed that if their, their religion would make them right with God, if they would just adhere to the teachings of their forefathers, if they would just adhere to this law as best they can, they, didn't, they felt like, well, I'm not doing it as well as I should, but at least I'm better than that guy down the street, or at least I'm better than that guy sitting in row whatever of my synagogue. At least I'm better than him. At least I'm better than that guy that I work with. But their religiosity never made them right. Their religion never made them right with God because God isn't just looking for us to be better than our neighbor. God's standard is himself. It's perfection. We put it in our context today, general spirituality as well. You know, 
in our day, we see a lot of sort of the spirituality of, of memes, we might say, M-E-M-E. You know, we know what memes are, those little things that we might see on social media. It's the little image that has a, a fun little saying. And those things are encouraging, sure. But oftentimes we think if we just get enough of it, and we might not codify this in our mind, but it's just sort of the general spirituality of the day. If I've just got enough spirituality in my life, sort of pull a little bit from this and this teaching and this religion, this guru, this person on TV, this celebrity. If I've just kind of got enough spirituality in my life, I'm all right. Nothing could be further from the truth. You see, here's the gospel again. Here's the gospel again. The Bible tells us that we were all created in the image of God. You're not here by a mistake. You're not here by a combination of time plus matter plus chance. You're here because God created you. But here's the unfortunate thing. We are separated from our perfect God, our creator, because of a thing called sin. Sin is any time that we violate uh, the law of God by thought, action, deed, intention, whatever it may be. And you say, well, I'm never, I don't know what the law of God is. Well, even though it may be trace amounts still because of corruption in our lives, we kind of all have a sense, some might be more distorted than others, of, of something that is right and wrong. That is a trace of the moral law of, of, of God in your life. And he says, when we violate that, even by one thing, we're separated from him. Not because he's mean, not because he holds some impossible standard just arbitrarily, It's because he is holy, perfect, and pure. Now, if we stop right there, with for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, first part of that verse. If we just stop right there, that's not good news at all. So, pastor, you're telling me that I'm separated from God, and there's nothing I can do to earn that for myself. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But here's the wonderful news. The second half of that verse, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2.8.9 tells us there's nothing we can do to earn that salvation. It's by grace you were saved through faith, not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God, not of work, so that no one can boast. There's nothing you can do to earn that. Nothing you can earn to do that. So what do I do? How do I receive this forgiveness unto myself? How can I be forgiven and cleansed? Well, Jesus himself tells us, repent and believe. Repent simply means that we turn away from our old way of life. You turn away from your way of doing things, thinking you're going to find significance and happiness and joy and fulfillment in the things that the world has to offer, living life my way. He says, turn from that and turn to me and believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Not some sort of academic belief, not some sort of belief of the mind, but a convictional belief that he is the one that forgives you and your Lord, the one who has control of your life. And you come to him and you say, Jesus Christ, I am giving my life to you. Will you forgive me? Will you cleanse me? Here's what I want to do. I'm going to ask our musicians to come on back up to the stage and they're going to play and we're going to enter into a time that we call a time of response. And it's, it's just as it sounds. We're going to give you an opportunity to respond to how God has been speaking to you. Maybe today during the sermon, maybe today during this sort of collective time of worship that we have, and the message of the song. Maybe God's been speaking to you for a number of days, weeks, months. 
He may have been speaking to you for years about giving your life to the Lord Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to how he's speaking to you. You see, this good news of the gospel that I said, it demands a response. It demands a response. And in fact, there is no neutral response to the gospel. You've heard the gospel message just as Paul was speaking to that that, uh, synagogue that day. I present to you through the word, not through myself, but through the word, the gospel message to you. You've heard it. There is no neutral response to the gospel. The question is, will you respond to the call of Jesus and will you give your life to him today? Here in just a few moments, we're going to sing another song of worship. And as we do, if you feel as though God is leading to you and you want to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, would you come find me in the back? I'm going to be right back there in the back. I'd love to speak with you about that. Let me tell you what, I don't want to soft pedal this too much. I want to urge you to come back. Do not put it off another day. Some of you know exactly what I've been talking about. God's been speaking to you for quite some time, in fact. You've been putting it off for whatever reason. You just don't feel like you can give away control of your life. You have a hard time trusting that God's way is going to be better than the way that you're limping along in life. Our Father is a good loving father. Jesus Christ is a wonderful savior. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, just a few moments, will you come back and find me? Will you come back and find me? You know, if you do know Christ as your savior too, and you want to have a church home where you can be encouraged and challenged to grow in your faith, would you come and find me too? Come be a part of this local family. But once again, Do not put it off one more day. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, may today be your day of salvation. As we stand and we sing, you respond.